Listener Production. In today's briefing, the neo-Nazi movement in Australia. When we fight for a free white Australia, we are joining our brothers in a struggle for a free white world. A global white revolution is the only solution. This shocking ideology and the plans of this movement, plus their attitudes towards the 2019 Christchurch shooting, have all been revealed by Australia's leading investigative journalist, Nick McKenzie. Their core belief is that by engaging in what they call direct action, so sort of overt acts of violence and fear and propaganda, they can speed up the impending collapse of society. So that's Nick there, and he's gained footage from inside secret meetings, bush camps, gym sessions. He's even uncovered the way this group are using encrypted messaging apps like Telegram to organise themselves and to share their ideology. So in this briefing, Nick shares what he's learned about this movement and the threat that it poses. First, today's headlines. It is Wednesday the 17th of August. I am Tom Tilley, joined by Rihanna Patrick. The former Home Affairs Minister has called on Scott Morrison to leave politics after more bombshell revelations about his secret portfolios. It would be appropriate, in my view, for Scott Morrison to resign and to leave Parliament. That's Karen Andrews, the former Home Affairs Minister. So since yesterday's episode, a lot has happened on this story. At that stage, we knew Morrison had secretly taken on three portfolios, health and finance in March 2020, and then industry, energy and resources in April 2021. Now, yesterday morning, Morrison finally came out and tried to explain his actions on Sydney Radio 2GB, and he was asked if there were any more portfolios he'd secretly taken over. Not to my recollection. There were a number that were considered at the time for safeguard reasons, but I don't recall any others being actioned. I don't recall any others. So then a few hours later, after a quick investigation by Anthony Albanese's head of department... We found out there were actually two more. He took over Home Affairs and Treasury in May last year. And neither of the ministers in charge of those portfolios knew. It's an extraordinary and unprecedented trashing of our democracy by the former Morrison government. So one of those ministers was Karen Andrews, who, as you heard, is not happy. And the other is Josh Frydenberg, who was treasurer and had no idea this had happened, even though he was living with Scott Morrison at the lodge at the time and had been defending the prime minister against a leadership spill. So after this was revealed, uh, Scott Morrison then came out with another statement, this time in a lengthy Facebook post. And basically his reasoning was that he did this to safeguard Australia during the height of the pandemic. And he apologised for not disclosing the arrangements and for any offence caused to his colleagues. It's just a crazy story, isn't it, Rihanna? It's completely bizarre. How does something like this happen? Well, it raises the question, who did know about it? Because there's so many people that didn't know anything about it. And the whole story confirms the worst allegations about Scott Morrison's deceptive character. And I guess the allegations also that he had no respect for his colleagues or the electorate, or our system. And our ministerial system works by having transparency. You know, we, the public, know who's responsible for a portfolio, and that way we can hold them to account for their work. And that's been completely trashed, as Anthony Albanese said, by this secret arrangement. And it also just shows this shocking disregard for his colleagues. If this was such a good idea, why not tell your colleagues? Why not tell the nation? And the other problem with his defence is that Only two of the appointments happened at the height of the pandemic. The other three didn't. And personally, I think 
there's no real point in him staying in Parliament. His reputation is so damaged that he won't be leader again, that's for sure. And I don't think he'd be trusted in Cabinet again. So he only brings disrepute to a party trying to rebuild. And I think today it'll be interesting to see who else comes out and joins Karen Andrews in calling him to stand down. Andrew Bolt has been telling him to go. Even um, conservative commentators like Paul Kelly in The Australian are labelling this whole saga just weird. The federal, state and territory Indigenous ministers are coming together today to hash out the voice to parliament. Yeah, state and territory support will be critical if the government wants to get this referendum up. Uh, Meanwhile, Victoria and Queensland have both been making their own strides towards treaties with First Nations people this week. Yeah, the Victorian Parliament has passed legislation to establish an authority that will oversee a treaty. And in Queensland, a truth-telling inquiry has been announced by Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. This is our chance to mark the end of one chapter of this story and begin another. Not as an act of government, but as the will of the people. And meanwhile, in Hobart, the City Council will remove the statue of a controversial former Premier and surgeon, William Crowther. Yeah, Crowther broke into a morgue and stole the skull of Aboriginal man William Lane and then sent it to the British Museum. And after a long campaign by the Indigenous community, the Council has agreed he shouldn't be commemorated any longer. And that statue was erected in 1889. What do you think of that? Do you think they've made the right decision to take down that statue? At the end of the day, I think if the Indigenous community of Tasmania wants it, then it's up to them to make that decision. And the Bureau of Meteorology is warning there's a 70% chance of another La Nina in spring and summer, bringing more wet weather and flooding to the east coast. That is terrible news. That'll be three La Ninas in a row, which is a very rare and very annoying event. Yeah, and this news comes as a report following this year's New South Wales flood disaster is due to be released today. Yeah, it's going to bring recommendations, 28 of them. Um, One of them is that there should be a single app used to coordinate disaster response and a flood rescue training centre should be built. And it also recommends raising the Warragamba Dam wall just out on the western edge of Sydney. And the New South Wales government has supported all the recommendations in principle or in full. And there's been a major split in Australia's Anglican Church. The Sydney Morning Herald's reporting that conservatives who oppose same-sex marriage have launched a breakaway movement led by former Sydney Archbishop Glenn Davies. They aim to lure Anglicans who are unhappy with progressive bishops. Yeah, the Diocese of the Southern Cross was formally launched in Canberra on Sunday and small localised breakaway churches aren't new, but there's never been any with this sort of scope or involving such senior members of the established church before. Yeah, it really seems to be dividing the Anglican Church. There's been similar splits in North America, Brazil and New Zealand. So, you know, it was 2017 when we had the the plebiscite on same-sex marriage, but it's still dividing religious communities. And the Hemsworths are helping to bring the Tasmanian tiger back to life again. Well, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, so a group of Melbourne and Texas scientists are planning to use genetic engineering techniques to recreate the Tasmanian tiger and reintroduce it in 10 years. Now, this marsupial officially died out in the 1930s. Yeah, and the $15 million project will be carried out by the University of Melbourne and Colossal, a Texas-based biotechnology company which had previously worked on reviving the woolly mammoth. Yeah, so Chris Hemsworth, who plays the God of Thunder in the Marvel movies, and his brothers Luke and Liam, 
um, have chipped in with some of the money. Um, Chris Hemsworth says, our family remains dedicated to supporting conservationist efforts around the world and protecting Australia's biodiversity is a high priority. He said the Tassie tiger's extinction had a devastating effect on our ecosystem and we're thrilled to support these revolutionary conservation efforts. All right, that will be an exciting one to watch. Tasmanian tigers back in the wild. All thanks to the Hemsworths. Uh, Rihanna, thank you so much for those headlines. We'll catch you again tomorrow. In just a moment, Katrina Blowers joins me as we look at the threat posed by neo-Nazis in Australia. Now to today's briefing topic. It is Katrina Blowers here with you. In 2016, neo-Nazis and groups like it accounted for 10 to 15% of ASIO's counter-terror caseloads. Now they're devoting half of their resources to them. And these groups are targeting young men to join up. The average age of this cohort is 25. We're seeing people as young as 16 and 17 in these groups. That concerns us. They're middle class, well-educated. They understand the ideology. They look like everyday Australians. That's Mike Burgess, the Director General of ASIO, speaking recently on 60 Minutes to today's briefing guest, Nick McKenzie. Yeah, Nick's won 12 Walkleys. He's the best investigative journo of the current crop, and he's published a series of investigations on this subject for the nine newspapers, along with a documentary uh, released on Stan earlier this year. Nick, thanks for joining us. What made you start wanting to investigate this movement? I think the community had heard a lot about neo-Nazis from politicians and from counter-terror chiefs or from the ASIO boss, but no one had really seen what the movement looked like up close, uh, on the ground. So our aim was to find a way to really put the microscope in and uh, we, we decided the best way to do that was probably to get a, an insider, either somebody in the group who was willing to work with us and cast light and really who's who in the zoo, how they operated, what sort of danger they posed or to send in an undercover operative who was willing to, to do the same and, and do so ideally while wearing a, a hidden camera. So it was about just seeing what neo-Nazis in Australia look like up close. And then uh, the ideal aim was if we could do that, then to figure out who's the leadership, how are they recruiting, are they planning some sort of a terror attack, uh, what, what sort of danger do they pose? So that was, that was the hope, and I think we did actually achieve that to, to some extent. We got into the group uh, via an undercover we got to see the leaders up close. We got to look at their recruitment methods. That said, though, we, I mean, we, we got into an outer circle. We did not get to the inner, inner hub. The real skill that the undercover had was about drawing people in. How do we make these neo-Nazis feel like they can be themselves and open up in front of a, a stranger? Because they're all told, you know, never trust a stranger. Never use your real name. Uh, only use a first name and, and make that up. Anyone in the group can be an undercover policeman or ASIO or an undercover journal, any time. They're told that from, from day dot. One example, there was a couple of guys in the, in the NSN who took our undercover out uh, into the bush and said, we want to buy this tract of land, we want to set up a white community here, there will be a military-style practice, our white families will, will live together and, and this will be the hub of our movement where ultimately we'll, we'll take over. Yeah, so tell us more about that vision. Does it start off with a a small base like that and just work out slowly or, or is there plans of a bigger takeover of government? Um, I know there's been some revelations about them trying to infiltrate the more mainstream um, right-wing parties in Australia. 
What is the overall plan and strategy that you've tried to eke out through this undercover investigation? Their core belief is that by engaging in what they call direct action, so sort of overt acts of violence and fear and propaganda, they can speed up the impending collapse of society in a way that will open up a space for the white nationalists who will be armed to wrestle control of society and take what they say would be their their rightful place, leading society. Now, it sounds like absolute crazy conspiracy theory stuff, and it is. What you've got to understand is they truly believe it. They they think that there is a pending conflict coming up and and they can speed up this pending conflict. They can take on the mainstream and and do so with violence. If they fully believe that, what are are they prepared to do to advance that aim? What crazy act? What violent act uh, are they prepared to engage in to take that aim further? And this is the real problem. There are some people, sometimes on the fringe of these groups, sometimes rather on the inside, who are prepared to use political violence to further that aim. And that's what's terrifying about the group. And it's, it's an incubator. The group's leaders push these sort of conspiracy theories onto often young, impressionable Australians, but also sometimes old, impressionable Australians. They give these people who are sort of bobbing around society without much hope, they give them a brotherhood, they give them a cause, and suddenly they feel empowered. And it's those people who don't have the ability to sort fact from fiction and who are willing to engage in violence. They're the ones who keep me up at night. Well, essentially, you could argue the worst case scenario already played out in Christchurch, where Brendan Tarrant killed 51 people. Is that the kind of lone wolf attacks by someone right out there, like that individual, that we need to be most alarmed about, do you think? ASIO, which I think is doing a good job keeping an eye on these groups or doing its job and doing it, um, that, that one of its core functions, you know, warns Australians every year that the biggest risk is from, uh, they don't call it a lone wolf, they call it a lone actor. The idea of being a lone wolf is like someone sitting by themselves. These actors are part of groups, part of networks, and engaging in an act of terror that you know, could involve a knife uh, or a car. So something pretty simple, it doesn't require much resources, but can cause great damage and great death. That is the risk. The Christchurch, some years have passed now, but it's got to remain in our minds as what these groups think is good. I mean, the most terrifying thing we, our undercover operative found was that they think the Christchurch killer is a hero. I mean, the, the head of the NSN told his adherents, his recruits, this bloke is the Nelson Mandela of our movement and he's staying in prison in New Zealand until we get him out, until we win and then he's out. Uh, you know, if, if that's their belief, if that's their thoughts, then it's not a stretch to think that somebody could engage in, in an act of you know, significant violence like what we saw in New Zealand. Now you'd hope, and I, and I do believe our counter-terror agencies are much better equipped today than they were uh, before that attack. And, and the terrible thing about that attack is it exposed the huge weaknesses in our law enforcement agencies where people hadn't taken this sort of threat seriously. We thought about neo-Nazis as basically idiots in mm. you know, garages and drinking booze and not posing that much of a risk. And that's, that totally changed as it should. But still, you know, it doesn't take that lone actor a great deal to go and do a great deal of harm. And that's, that's what's very terrifying. What is your estimate on how many people are involved and how many branches they have? I mean, the NSN was the biggest group. I think 
uh, what's really hurt the group is it's is a the the exposure that we gave it. I mean, overnight we saw it t- Telegram accounts, it's encrypted online forum accounts, you know, drop in number. So it's very difficult as a media organisation or a journalist. You don't want to give these guys any free publicity or propaganda. Uh, but I think what we did was we exposed them to be the miserable sort of pathetic outfits that they are, and we exposed their operational security, their so-called vetting and their anti-ASIO procedures to be a joke because we we could infiltrate it. So, you know, anyone wanting to join the NSM would have thought long and hard about doing so. I think there's probably a few few or several dozen members, highly active members of the NSN around Australia still uh, involved in active networking. I think it's wrong to judge their threat by how many people are in the group. You might have a few dozen active members. You might have several hundreds or thousands of people then follow um, associated telegram or online accounts which pump out racist memes and, and these sorts of things. But it's those small number of hardcore members you worry about. And again, it just requires one person to do a, an act of terror that can have a huge impact. To say what we worry about is what, how hardcore are these core members? How committed are they? Are they savable or are they really going to be people that need to be subject of, of constant monitoring by our counter-terror authorities to make sure they don't take the, the, the next step. And my belief is it's those small number of people. There are hardcore people who do pose a great terror uh, threat. And what our agencies have been saying most recently is some of them is, is, are really young. They're, they're you know, around the age of 13 is the youngest. And if someone's 13, the ability for them to be swayed and is simply immense. And the ability of our authorities to reach them before they do something may be limited because it's hard to find out who they are uh, and they're massively impressionable. So, you know, there is, I don't want to be over over the top about the fear that we need to, to hold about these groups, but our society needs to be very, very concerned because instinctively I think we try to, to downplay it. And why do we do that? Well, I don't know. Is it because they look like ordinary members of society? Is it because we have a instinctive um, some people, some white people in our society look at other white people and say, well, they wouldn't do that. I mean, there's a racism, I think, in the way that we, we look at, at terrorism and we put uh, Islamic extremists on a, on a more dangerous scale. Well, that's, that's not the case. There's, some of these guys are just as dangerous. Mm. Well, a lot of our terror laws were designed in a time where uh, Islamic extremism was the main target, but clearly the threat has changed. And it makes me wonder whether our laws are fit for purpose anymore. Do you think those laws need to be tightened? Uh, there's been uh, allegations of people preparing for, from right-wing groups preparing for acts of terror. They've been charged. Uh, we've avoided a Christchurch-style attack or even something lesser in Australia. And, and that's got to be a mark of success by our agencies. But the, you know, there are problems with the laws. And one major issue is we know that these groups use Telegram the encrypted online messaging service to organise, to plan, to share tactics, to share terrorism uh, manuals. And while our laws on paper permit the federal government to actually come after the companies like Telegram for hosting these uh, this hate speech and these this potential terror activity, and Telegram's based, I think, in Russia, enforcing the laws are all but impossible. So what's the point of having a law that's unenforceable? It's, it's a dead letter law. It's got to be a, a global response. Do better at coming after companies like Telegram, which are 
I mean, it's called Terragram for a good reason, which are hosting extremist groups all over the world and empowering them. There are tweaks to our laws to, to make uh, ideally the, the internet be a place that can be policed or regulated a bit better without restricting individual freedoms. But ultimately as well, it's about making sure that we as a society talk about this stuff. And these terror groups and these far-right extremist groups, they begin to become more successful when we discount the threat and we take our eye off the ball. Mm. Uh, so I think it's about constant vigilance. That was Nick McKenzie, who's an investigative journo for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and 60 Minutes. And what a deep dive he's done on this group, Tom. Yeah, I think it's really important work to understand this threat and you can just see how difficult this job is for law enforcement because you can closely watch the dozen or so men at the centre of this movement. But as Nick said, there could be hundreds or even thousands of others who might be inspired by them or just even one of their sick memes that they so often communicate with and that person could go out and act alone, which is really frightening. Yeah, you don't know who that person's going to be, particularly when these particular members, you know, these are young guys in their 20s and sometimes teens, you know, mid-30s, and they're not even telling their closest friends around them who aren't part of the group what their ideologies are. They're really keeping it to themselves and just communicating it with with other like-minded people. So it's so hard to tell, even if you are friends with these people, what's really going on inside their heads. Mm. And I guess for, you know, the general public, we just have to hope that our law enforcement agencies are properly adjusting their tools and their practices, even potentially our our laws from, you know, the way they were originally designed when they were focusing on violent Islamic extremists and update them to deal with the unique nature of this threat. All right, very interesting episode tomorrow. We're going deep on the big Scott Morrison secret portfolio controversy. We're actually going to speak to the journalist Simon Benson, who wrote the book that sparked this whole controversy. Listener.